Our Bible reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 1, sorry, Galatians chapter 3, from verse 1 to 14. Our pool is Galatians, who has bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer any, many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who hung on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Good morning, church family and friends. If you're new to us, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at the church. Uh, if this is your very first time, we are glad that you're here. We hope everyone received a church bulletin on your way in this morning. Bulletins are a very helpful means of communication for us as a church. You'll find in yours announcements, prayer requests for an unreached people group, budget updates, helpful articles. You'll find song lyrics, scripture readings, a place for sermon notes where you can take the bulletin and throughout the week meditate on the scriptural truths from the service. Now, bulletins are not normally meant to be a form of entertainment. But occasionally, there are misprints found in bulletins that are rather humorous. Now, not in ours. Chris Lejeune does an excellent job each week, and we're thankful for his ministry. But, but in church bulletins around the world, sometimes the unexpected appears. One pastor friend of mine put together a sampling of church bulletin misprints. See if you can discern the mistakes made in some of these bulletins. Today, the pastor will preach his farewell message, after which the choir will sing, Break Forth into Joy. The choir will meet us at the Smith House for fun and sinning. Miss <laughs> Margaret Joe saying, I will not pass this way again, giving obvious pleasure to the congregation. <laughs> Next week, we will begin a 9.30 a.m. worship service. The 11 a.m. service will be hell as usual. <laughs> Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a good chance to get rid of things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. <laughs> now the next one is most unfortunate. 
Weight Watchers weight loss meeting will meet at 7 a.m. Please use the large double doors in the side entrance. (laughs) Those are some unfortunate misprints. At first glance, there appears to be a mistake or a misprint in our passage this morning. Not a mistake of a humorous nature, but of a serious one. In this passage, the unexpected appears. If you haven't made your way to Galatians 3 yet, turn there. Turn to this letter that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. And we'll begin chapter 3 today. And as Joey just read for us, we're looking at verse 1 on through verse 14. And there in verse 1, the Apostle Paul starts in an unexpected way, a stunning way. It looks like there's a mistake that has been made in the scripture. And he starts out this chapter and says, Oh foolish Galatians! He identifies them as fools. How could the man say this, who in the same letter says in chapter 6 verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How could the same man that penned Galatians 6.1 call these people fools? And not once, but twice. And this wasn't just a man who got out of hand with his emotions and let it slip. He says it again, verse 3. Galatians, are you so foolish? This is an apostle we're talking about here. This is the apostle Paul. And he's calling these people in Galatia fools. But friends, his wording was intentional because it was a serious matter. He had grave concerns over the Galatians. The Galatians were departing from the gospel and he can't believe it. So much so there in verse 1 he says, Who has bewitched you? One translation translates it this way. You crazy Galatians, did someone give you a, a hallucinatory drug? Something crazy has happened. Charles Spurgeon calls it witchcraft. It's as if they are under some kind of spell. Their eyes are locked in a tractor beam towards this erroneous teaching and they just can't get their eyes off of it. Paul's asking, who's tricked you? Who's duped you? What's happened there in Galatia? I showed up. I told you about Jesus. I held the gospel out for you. Told you what Jesus did for you. And now that I've left, you've you've walked away. You're departing from Christ. He was trying to capture their attention. He's trying to capture our attention today. Paul loved this church. He loved the Galatians. He planted it. He refers to them as brothers. He wants to protect them from this false teaching and belief. These Galatians were in the process of deserting the gospel. There's a spiritual crisis and the root issue is legalism. Now, we need to be careful in saying that legalism is harmless. We think eh, these rules, these regulations we place in our lives are a good thing, and we must do them to please God. Well, C.J. Mahaney defines legalism this way. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through my obedience to God. Let me say that again slowly, just so you can capture that definition. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and justification before God and acceptance by God 
through my obedience to God, through my work for God. Friends, legalism is no small thing. It's self-atonement. The Galatians have moved on from the gospel to a religion of works. Is it possible for someone or some church to start under good teaching, loving Jesus, trusting him, studying good theology, and then get into all kinds of weird nonsense that they start adding things to Jesus? Well, of course it is. Of course it can happen. It can happen to them. And friends, it can happen to us if we're not careful. Well, Paul's going to argue that legalism is opposed to the gospel. He's going to take 14 verses and give us the proof that salvation is by faith alone. He'll argue in our verses three things that prove it. And this will serve as our outline this morning if you're taking notes and tracking through the scripture. First, he'll appeal to the Galatians' experience in verses 1 through 5. The Galatians' experience. Then second, he'll appeal to Abraham's testimony in verses 6 through 9. And then third, he'll appeal to Christ's substitution, verses 10 through 14. The Galatians' experience, Abraham's testimony, and Christ's substitution. First, verses 1 through 5, the Galatians' experience. Paul's going to ask five questions, one in each verse, to help us dissect our hearts as to whether we're a legalist, resting on our own works, or if we're resting on Christ's finished work. And first, verse 1 appeals to their sanity. To their sanity. And he says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. A sane person is able to sort out what is more important and what is less important in life. The cross of Christ is a central fact to which all other facts are subordinate to. But the Galatians, they were treating the cross as merely one item of their religion. Incidental. Not central. They were insane because they were putting their works ahead of the most unique, massive, monumental, unprecedented, unparalleled display of love in the history of the world. They were just brushing it aside. What does Paul mean when he says that it was before your eyes that Christ was portrayed as crucified? First of all, the Galatians, they live far away from Palestine. How could Paul say, before your eyes? How could he say that to the Galatians? Notice it doesn't say, before your very eyes, Jesus was seen as crucified. It says it was portrayed. The word portrayed means to be held up on a placard or a sign for everyone to see. Paul is saying, don't you remember all my preaching to you about Christ? I wasn't just teaching facts or lecturing I was heralding. I was holding up graphically and vividly the crucifixion. I was bringing this event from the past on into the present. The Galatians weren't physically present at the crucifixion, but through Paul's Paul's preaching, this past event was in effect brought from the past to the present and into their experience. Paul showed them the cross. And it was portrayed before their very own eyes. This has the idea that it was made as plain and simple as it could be. As if he had printed a notice and put the words in capital letters and stuck it right up before their eyes, before their faces. It was like a billboard in the town center that said, Christ alone equals salvation. Paul saying, Galatians, 
I've made it clear to you. But these false teachers, they've, they've come in and they've painted graffiti all over that sign and you've chosen to follow the stuff they've written instead of the real thing. Here's what's frightening and sobering. They knew it. And they forgot it. They left it. They forgot. The Galatians had seen Christ portrayed as crucified and now had come under this spell called legalism. They had the gospel, but some of the folks came in, sowed seeds of doubt and said, are you sure? Are you sure it's Christ alone? I mean, are you really sure it's faith in Christ alone? I think you guys need to at least consider the Jewish laws just in case. Just do these things just in case, just to make it a sure bet that you'll be reconciled to God. Yes, yes, Jesus is good, but so are these laws. The problem is Paul didn't just bring good advice from Jesus, but he brought good news about Jesus. Paul doesn't say, here's what you have to do. Paul's saying, Galatians, here's what's already done for you. It's finished. Friends, this is terrifying. The, the truth of these verses is terrifying. It's, if the Galatians forgot Paul's cross-centered preaching and message after hearing it directly from an apostle, surely we're vulnerable to forget it as well. I don't know about you, but I can hardly get through even a day without forgetting the gospel. And my work is church work. It's full-time ministry. I get busy, though, with meetings, life decisions, administration, even sermon prep, family. And I can even be doing the things of God, and I can forget God. I can forget the cross. I can forget the gospel. Friends, we need to adopt regular disciplines to help us remember what things are you regularly, regularly doing that provoke you to remember the cross? Are you reading God's word daily? This is not about earning God's favor to check a box and say, yeah, God, I, I did seven devotionals this week, and I've, I've done one each and every day at 6 a.m. in the morning for this long, and I did this many verses, and my prayers were this long. No, 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 no. It's not, not, not for legalism reasons, not to earn favor with God, but just so we don't forget God's promises. So we can carry them with us throughout the day. Are you memorizing scripture on the gospel? Perhaps you can start with Romans 8, verses 31 through 34. Or 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Maybe start there, commit those verses to memory, and recall them throughout your day. Are you praying through scripture? Are you opening a God's word? Maybe even to Galatians chapter 3 and praying through the truths of it. Applying it to your life, your family, other church members. Are you in a community group where you're studying the Bible with others? Do you get together with a friend to read the Bible together? Just choose a portion of scripture, choose a friend, read it, and work through observation, interpretation, application. Just ask, what is the text saying? What does it mean? And how does it apply to our lives? Just sit with someone over coffee, talk it through with someone, and then pray for each other. Do you study the gospel? Have you read Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel, and come to a greater appreciation of the good news? 
Are you maximizing your commute by listening to an audio Bible or Christ-centered sermons? Many of us are in the car or in the metro or in the bus or even walking great distances for work each and every day. Are we filling our minds and our hearts with the Bible and with gospel truth? Are you coming to our worship gathering each week or is this the one time a month or the one time you actually did kind of wake up from your slumber and decide to come? Are you coming regularly, not to earn God's favor, you know, our prayers that here we would publicly portray Christ as crucified each week through scripture readings, through prayers, through preaching, through singing. That we would not move on from the cross, forget the cross, or sideline the cross, or move aside the cross, or build onto the cross, but to hold it up faithfully each and every week. Find ways to hold the gospel in front of you and in front of your forgetful heart each and every day. Well, let's continue with Paul's questions. He, he moves on in verse 2. And here in verse 2, he appeals to their experience. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, let's look at your life, Galatians. How were you converted? Did you trust in Jesus or did you do something? And when you trusted Jesus, did you receive the Spirit and then your life changed? Is that what happened? Well, there's an old legend that happened during the Welsh Revival in the UK. It's a legend that the town drunk drank all his family's money away, and they had no money for anything, no money for food or household items. But then he got converted, and this drunk turned to Christ. And someone said to him, Friend, do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? Do you really believe that? And the guy said, well, I'm not so sure about that, but in my home, he turned beer into furniture. (laughs) You know what he's saying, right? I placed my faith in Christ and my life changed. I don't drink my salary anymore. We now have money around the house for food. I stopped being a drunk and I followed Jesus. I now care more about my family than I did about my alcohol. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you didn't get the Holy Spirit because you cleaned yourself up. God didn't say to you, okay, Galatians, I want you on my team, but I just can't accept you right now. I can't pick you for my team because your life is a train wreck. So here's what I want you to do. Here's a checklist. First, I want you to stop saying curse words. Yeah, that just, that just has to end. And second, you've got to stop drinking. Stop slandering your boss. Quit rolling your eyes at your husband. Stop lying to your wife. And when you get this list done, when you've checked off every single one of the boxes, then come back to me and I'll make you mine. And Paul's saying to the Galatians, that's not what he did. That's not what happened in your experience. He just saved you. Just in a moment, he saved you. He opened up your eyes. You believed. You don't get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. You came to Jesus and he cleaned you up. He's saying, Galatians, look at the evidence of Christ's work in your life. You believed in Jesus, he saved you, and he gave you his spirit. Christian friends, we would be wise to look at our experience and recall our conversion. It's a reminder of God's grace being poured out into our lives. I do this often. I look back at my conversion in my first year at university, and I see what he did. Now, I had gone to university with these wild dreams. I wanted to be rich, and I wanted to be famous. 
the two most important things to me. I'd even drawn pictures in, in secondary school there in high school of what my dream house would look like. It was a big dome-shaped house with all the bedrooms around the sides all opening up to a courtyard in the middle with a swimming pool right in the center of the house. That was my dream house. I had all these pictures and, and blueprints that I had drawn. I wanted to have this house. And I got accepted to this school because I wanted to be a, a doctor. And I told them I wanted to find the cure for cancer. And sure, I wanted to maybe help some people on the side. But what I really wanted was, was to be rich. I wanted to be well-known. I wanted the magazines to write about me. I found my significance and I placed my hope in that. If things didn't go my way, according to my plans, I'd be anxious. I'd be angry. I never went to bed satisfied, always worried about my death and wondering if I would ever amount to anything. And then there in university, God grabbed my life. My friend John came to university. His desire was to tell everybody about Jesus. And so John did. He told everybody he could find about Jesus. He would share the gospel with a wall if he could. He would go around and he said, Jesus came to save you. And at first I rejected it until one day I was lifting weights. And as I was lifting those weights, I felt the weight of my own sin against the holy God of the universe. And right then my eyes were opened by God and I trusted in Jesus to save me. And everything was changed. And now I had the Spirit in my life and I was radically different. He cleaned up my life. Now I wanted to live for God and I made decisions not on building my own name and making it great, but on making God's name great. And while I still struggle from time to time, my whole life was shifted. God cleaned my life up by the work of the Spirit. He did an amazing work. Paul's telling the Galatians, Look at your testimony. Remember how God saved you. Be reminded that you didn't get the Spirit because you cleaned up your life, but because of grace. God gave you the Spirit, and then your life was changed. Christian friends, share your testimony. Recall it to yourself. Share it with your spouse. Share it with your friend. In fact, share it today at lunch. Go out to lunch with someone and share with them how you came to faith. Together we want to be amazed by grace. We want to break the spell of legalism that threatens to creep into our church. Let's move on. Verse 3. Verse 3, Paul appeals to their spiritual growth. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's appealing to their common sense and he wants them to examine their growth. Paul says, how are you saved? By the Spirit? Yes. By the Spirit. Well, what are you doing now? Having, having begun by the Spirit, are you now off to works? Justified by faith, but sanctified by works? Now, sanctification is the process by which we grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness. It starts the day we're saved, and it goes out in our lives. It fleshes itself out in our lives throughout our earthly life. Having been justified, we are now being sanctified. But we can't use our obedience, as imperfect as it is, to establish our righteousness before God. To put this another way, we can't base our justification on our sanctification. Some of the Galatians apparently were saying, okay, well, we were saved by grace. But we have to obey the law to stay saved and to grow in our faith. (coughs) Excuse me. It just made no sense. Paul's saying, think about it. You're not justified by faith and then sanctified by works. 
They were saying that they had to finish Christ's already finished work. It would be like retracing Lionel Messi's signature on a football over and over and over again. Writing that rather than adding to its value, you would destroy it. You would nullify it. Paul says this in Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, because God is going to complete this work in us by faith. It would be sheer folly to go back to the law, Paul says. You were saved by faith and you grow by faith. Look at verse 4. Paul continues, he appeals to their persecution. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? One of the reasons it would have been especially foolish for the Galatians to return to the law has to do with all the hardship they faced. Perhaps the Galatians had come under attack for their faith in Christ, but if the cross is unnecessary, then why bother being persecuted for it? For them to turn their backs on the Spirit now would make their experiencing all the Spirit's work among them, would make it suffering in vain, pointless. Well, verse 5, the final question. Paul appeals to their God. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The fifth question puts us in touch with God. It's similar to the second question, but with a different emphasis. Not from the point of view of their receiving the Spirit, but from the point of view of God giving the Spirit. When Paul visited Galatia, God gave them the Spirit and worked miracles through them. The question is the same. How did God do these works among them? And the answer is the same. Not by works of the law, but by hearing through faith. God gave them the Spirit, verse 5, and they received the Spirit, verse 2. Not because they obeyed the law, but because they believed the gospel. God richly gives and supplies grace abundantly. So in this first point, we see Paul is arguing from the Galatians' experience. Look at your experience. Look at your conversion. Look at your spiritual growth. It is by grace alone through your faith that saves. So he looks at their experience. Well, now let's move on to Paul's second argument in the passage. This is the second point in our text this morning. Abraham's testimony. Abraham's testimony in verses 6 through 9. The question Paul poses here is, how was Abraham brought into the family of God? Did he obey the law and do good works to be saved? Paul gets right to the issue in verse 6 and continues his thought from verse 5 and says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word counting is an accounting word. It means if you work like crazy to earn a million dirhams and then transfer it into, into my account as a gift, it's mine. I have the value of it. I didn't work for it. I didn't do a thing, but it's still mine. What Paul is saying is that God's righteousness was credited. It was reckoned. It was transferred, imputed into Abraham's account. God gave Abraham something he didn't have, and he was now declared righteous. It's not that Abraham became righteous, he still sinned, but the minute he believed the gospel message, he was counted as righteous and he was justified. Notice that Abraham is counted as righteous even before the law was instituted. In next week's passage, we'll see in verse 17, Paul says it would be 430 years before the law was even given. 
There wasn't even a law that could save him or a set of rules that could deliver him. God saved him through faith alone in what was to come before there was a law to even obey. Do you see Paul's point? Look at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. One of the arguments of the Jews of the first century was that they believed you'd be saved because you were ethnically Jewish. But that's not true. As we've seen, you're not a follower of Christ because of your DNA. That means for us today, we're not Christians because our parents were Christians and taught us how to behave as Christians. This should give us great pause for reflection. That we are not to assume we're born again Christians simply because we were raised in the family of God. In the church or in a Christian family doesn't make us a Christian. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham and in God's family. What brings you into the people of God? Well, Paul says it's only one thing. Faith. In verse 8, Abraham is not only the example of our faith, but he's the source of our faith. He quotes Genesis 12 and says, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How are all the Gentiles and nations blessed by Abraham? Because from Abraham came one who we are deeply indebted to. From the line of Abraham, we would get Jesus. He ends this section, verse 9, with his conclusion then. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This verse means that anyone, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, white, black, brown, quick-witted, or slow, young, or old, anyone, anyone, anyone can be a child of Abraham and inherit the blessings promised to Abraham's children if, if they live by faith. Using Abraham as an example is a masterstroke of genius by the apostle. First of all, there was no law, as I said, so you can't look to Abraham as a law follower. And second, because if anyone was justified by his work, it would have been Abraham, right? He left his home, the land of his fathers, left his culture, left his family, extended family, left them all, and he went to some land. God said, hey, I'm going to show you some land. I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is or what it is. I just want you to start roaming around. And he roamed for 25 years. And then Abraham trusted God to give him a child. God promised an heir, even though Abraham was approaching 100 years old. I mean, he was an old man. And God said, you're going to have a child. Look at these stars out here at night. Your descendants, your ancestors are going to be like the number of stars in the sky. And then that son was born, that promised son Isaac was born. And God says, I want you to go up and I want you to kill your son, to offer him as a sacrifice on the altar. Abraham got all the materials together, got everything he needed, and he marched that march. Took Isaac up, strapped Isaac to that altar, lift up that dagger, and would have killed him if God hadn't intervened and stopped him. Have any of you responded to God this way? If any of you have done that, the Bible has this to say for you. You're not quite there yet. You're not quite there yet. Keep working. Even Abraham's work wasn't enough. And yet for centuries and for the life of the church, we keep trying. Keep trying to do it on our own. This is what we've been studying in the Protestant Reformation Church History class over the past several weeks. The central part of the, of the Reformation was started when 
the German monk Martin Luther nailed some notes, some 95 theses on the front door of a church. It was like the town bulletin board. He nailed these 95 declarations and statements to contest what was called indulgences. There was a man in the Catholic Church named John Tetzel. He'd go from town to town telling people that they could free their deceased family members from purgatory by paying money to the church. If you give money, if you do this work, then you'll free your family from punishment. And John Tetzel would have this little saying that he would say as he went from town to town. He'd say, as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he really meant that. If you give money to the church, if you give of your money and your funding, you can save your ancestors from suffering. You can bring them to heaven. The reformers gave their life against this, saying salvation is completely out of our hands, that it is only Christ who saves. And the reformers came up with five solas, or five alones. These were the fundamental beliefs of the reformers, that authority comes from Scripture alone, not from the Pope, not from John Tetzel, not from tradition, but from the Bible. And that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But what got Martin Luther in trouble wasn't that we're saved by faith. It wasn't that proclamation. What got him in trouble was that one word attached to it. Sola. Sola fide. Faith alone. It was the alone that got him in trouble. Not penance, not communion, not confession, not anything. It was none of those things that you could add to Jesus. It was faith in Jesus by itself. Faith in Jesus alone. Only Jesus. Only faith in him. And that was the offense of the cross. But we can't add things to the cross. It's offensive to us still. You might know or you might have friends who are observing Lent right now. Perhaps you know of friends who have given something up to try to see if God would approve of them. They give something up to see if maybe they could earn some favor with God. Maybe you've done that. Well, if that's you, perhaps Lent is your opportunity to give up nothing more than your own efforts to prove that you can save yourself. Maybe to give up your efforts to convince God that you're worth saving. There's only one person who has ever lived the life God was pleased with, and it was Jesus, the God-man, the one who left his heavenly throne and came to earth to live the life of faith we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve if we don't turn to him in faith. It's no overstatement this morning to say that the most important concern in your life is to make sure you're a child of Abraham. That you follow his example in placing your faith in Christ. It's how Abraham was saved and it's how you can be saved too. Well, so far in these verses, we've seen Paul show us that salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by first looking at the Galatians' experience and then second at Abraham's testimony. Well, now he's going to conclude by looking at Christ's substitution. The third thing Paul shows us in verses 10 through 14 is Christ's substitution. Notice again in verse 10, the law simply doesn't save. Verse 11, no one is justified by the law. No one. Keeping the Ten Commandments won't save you. But that's often what I hear when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and I ask, are you going to heaven? 
They say yes. And I say, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? What makes you so sure? And they say, well, I'm doing pretty well at keeping the commandments these days. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. If someone says that to you, if someone tells you they're keeping all the commandments, ask them this. Name them. What are those Ten Commandments again? Why don't you just start with number one and make your way down to number ten for me? I've done this. They just kind of backpedal. Um, well, well, I have not murdered anyone. Okay, good work. Good job. Uh, I, I, I don't steal. And then they, they just kind of get hung up at that. I've never met someone who claims to follow all the commandments who can actually name all ten. Can you even name all ten? You don't have to raise your hands. No confession this morning. It's not so easy, is it? But it even gets worse. God's people were governed by 613 other laws that you had to fulfill. So even if your friend can name all 10 commandments, and even if they somehow most miraculously can from memory name all 613 laws, ask them this. Have you been faithful to all of them 100% of the time? If they say yes, then mention the two laws that most of us think we've been faithful to keep. Murdering someone and cheating on our spouse, committing adultery. Even with those, Jesus comes along and he takes those very two in Matthew chapter 5 and he says, you know, you say you've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after someone? Have you ever looked at another woman or another man with intent for them? Then I tell you, you've committed adultery in your heart. You say you have never murdered anyone. Have you ever felt anger towards someone? Because if you felt anger towards someone, I tell you, you've committed murder in your heart. Not any one of us could stand up here and say, we've done it all. Imagine your job here in Dubai. Imagine showing up for work one day. Your boss says to you, here's your job description. Perfect as God is perfect. If and when you fail, you'll be fired because we don't see good and bad here. We only see perfect and imperfect around here. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, you actually have that boss. (laughs) Well, if so, I'm sorry. You would approach them if they said that to you. You'd say, well, no, I can't do that. And the boss says, well, those are the company rules. You think those are good rules, they ask? You say, well, yeah, those are all good rules. And he says, well, keep them or you're fired. And I have a special scientific ability. I can see into your heart. I can see your conscience. I can see your thoughts and motives. I can read your mind, so don't mess up. Now, would that be a good day at work? Probably be a pretty short day for each of us. James 2.10 says, if you violate even the least bit of God's law, how much have you disobeyed and violated? All of it. It's like a seamless garment. You pull one string and it comes undone. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.48 that we should be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Though the Bible is clear, every single last one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Consider this past week in your life. Is there even one day you can point to that you went to bed without a single cause for regret? 
Not one unkind remark, not one good deed left undone. All your work done to the best of your ability. All your words perfectly true, no gossip, no selfishness. You are perfectly motivated by love. And all of this not to the praise and glory of yourself, but for the praise and glory of the one who made you. Now, I'll admit, I haven't even done that this morning. I can't even get through a sermon without sinning. For example, I might start caring more about what you think of me as a preacher than God's work in your hearts. There's a million other temptations I'm tempted to, even when I'm preaching. Now, let's, let's be honest. We can't even get through Bible study without sinning. The placard is up. We're there studying the Bible. The sign is up. Christ is publicly portrayed as being crucified. And we're looking at him and we're seeing him and we're praying to him. And anxiety just grips us. Doubt fills our souls. Lust tempts us. Greed in our bank account distracts us. Even while we read and even while we pray, we're susceptible to our flesh and to our sin and susceptible to take our eyes off of Jesus and to put it on something else. Every last one of us is tempted by that. And friend, what Paul's telling us is that the law doesn't save. What does? Well, Paul quotes from the book of Habakkuk in verse 11 again. And Paul tells us for the hundredth time, it's faith. Verse 12, if you're going to live by the law, you must practice the law. But we can't. In verse 13, he goes even further. He says this law you're trying to keep, it's a curse. Bible scholar Doug Moo says the curse in scripture refers to God's judgment. A judgment that takes the form of exclusion from God's land and God's people. We are cursed because we are under the demands of a holy and righteous God and we've fallen short to obey him. And so we've been excluded from God. We've been excluded from God's people. We have been separated from him. And there in our passage, Paul also quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. When a person was executed in the Old Testament, it was usually by stoning. The person was stoned to death, and then they were hung on a tree. It was a symbol of divine rejection. It wasn't that the man was cursed because he hung there, but he was hung there as a sign of the curse. The gruesome sight would then serve as a warning to everyone that would walk by the tree of what would happen to them if they broke the law. So you'd walk on to do your your shopping, and you'd look up, and you'd see this gruesome sight. And it was to remind you that if you broke the law, this is what you deserved. The point Paul was making is this. If we try to save ourselves by our works, we are under the curse. That corrupting, corroding body on a tree is an object lesson. So what happens to us when we try to merit our own salvation through our own works? That's what all of us deserve. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. All of us are cursed. All of us are dead. All of us are helpless apart from divine intervention. And that's where the good news comes in. That for those who have faith, Christ became a curse for us on the tree. It was there that he freed us and redeemed us by paying the penalty we deserved, and he released us from the curse of the law. The contrast on the cross is striking. We deserve the curse. He didn't. We couldn't escape the curse on our own. He voluntarily took it. 
we are born into the curse, daily confirm the rightness of the curse. He had to become a curse, for it had no, no natural hold on him. How did God redeem us? By standing in our place. This is where we get the concept of substitution. Of penal substitutionary atonement. It's very important that we understand this. Because theologically there's movements that have been underway that deny the substitutionary work of Christ. They say, well, Jesus didn't really die in our place. Jesus just died as our example. Jesus was just another great guy. He showed us how humble we should be in the face of adversity. And he suffered with great dignity. He did a good job. He was a great example that we are to follow. Jesus is a great example. But he is much, 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 much more than that. He is a substitute in our place. Penal substitutionary atonement is that Christ went to the cross with my sins placed upon him, taking, God's, taking my punishment that I deserve from God in my place. The Father poured out his wrath and judgment upon the Son for me. And for all believers. It was there on the cross that the greatest exchange took place. In our place, condemned he stood. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed. We are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The total separation from the Father was something the Son had never experienced in eternity past. It was the vortex of his curse-bearing and the reason we know that the sacrifice was accepted and worked salvation for us was that on the third day, the tomb was empty. Matthew 28 says, An angel told the women at the tomb, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said he would. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and they will see him again in Galilee. As a believer in Christ, this is your reality. Jesus has taken your curse and he has died in your place and he has risen from the dead. Redeemer Church of Dubai, don't forget this. Redeemer Church, don't forget this lest we be bewitched by false teachers. These teachers are all around us, all seeking, like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Oh friend, do not forget the cross. If you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, turn to him. Some of you are so exhausted right now because you've been on a performance treadmill for so long trying to earn favor and acceptance from God based on your own performance and you're just tired. 
You're just worn out. You're wiped out. Friend, I want to urge you to get off this never-ending treadmill and go to the living water that can quench your soul's thirst in a way that nothing else can. Legalism is in effect saying Christ's death on the cross is insufficient. Legalism is substituting our works for Christ's finished work. It's saying his life, his incarnation, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension didn't quite cut it. So I've got something to prove to myself, to others, and most of all, to God. Friends, you can't do it. And it's not merely pointless to try, but it's spiritually lethal and the epitome of foolishness. Turn from the self-worship that is legalism and turn to worship the one true God. There's no mistake in Paul's writing. These harsh verses weren't a misprint in the letter. Paul didn't accidentally miss a letter. He wasn't in a fit of anger when he called them fools. He loved them so much he wanted them to know that they were near to departing Christ. Friends, let's heed this call and sing in a minute with all of our might that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lead on Jesus' name. Let us go to this great God now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that our hope is not built on ourselves or what we can do but on the finished work of Christ on the cross as our saving substitute. He is the one who bore our curse and even became the curse for us. We pray that we would not trust our sweetest temporary frame, but today, this month, and for the years to come, would we lean wholly on Jesus' name. Father, we pray this. In Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, please stand as we now sing out to our great God and to each other these truths. That it is Jesus that we rely on. That it is Jesus who we hope for.